Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy Thursday at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. About 18% of pregnant women in the United States develop gestational diabetes. So what is it? How does it affect you and your baby during pregnancy? Can it impact your labor and delivery? I'm Dr. Douglas Fenton, an OBGYN with Scripps Health, and this is Preggy Pals, Episode 3. Um, is that a plus sign? Pink or blue? Hospital or home birth? What type of food should I be eating? I think I just peed myself. I'm pregnant. And I have to exercise? What, Pregnancy Glow? Wait, was that a contraction? (laughs) Gotta make these pants fit! I've got kinkles! What do you mean there's more than one? You've got the symptoms, and now you've got the support you need for a happy nine months. This is Preggy Pals, your pregnancy, your way. Welcome to Preggy Pals, broadcasting from the Birth Education Center of San Diego. I'm your host, Sunny Galt. Thanks so much for joining us. Preggy Pals is all about our listeners. You can visit our website at preggypals.com for more information on how you can become part of our show. You can join our conversation by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. And you can also send us comments or suggestions through the contact link on our website or call the Preggy Pals hotline at 619 866 4775. Okay, I am joined by three other pregnant women here in the studio. I am 34 years old. I'm a web video host and producer. My due date is, okay, two dates. April 28th is my due date, but I'm having a C-section, which is currently scheduled for April 23rd. This is going to be a little boy. I already have a little boy at home. And so this is my second. Go ahead, Rochelle. Hi, my name is Rochelle. I teach college part-time. My due date is June 23rd. And we are expecting a boy. It's my second child. I already have a little boy at home as well. And we are planning for a vaginal hospital birth. My name's Amy. I'm 35. I'm a stay-at-home mom with a due date of July 1st. It's a little boy, and we have a daughter at home. And I'm Cherry. I work in market research, and I'm due with my first baby on the 20th of June. And we're waiting till then to find out if it's a girl or boy for the big surprise. And we're planning on having a home birth. Sounds familiar. If your baby is going through another bout of bad diaper rash, then you need to give Dr. Mom Butt Balm a try. It was created by a mom who's also a doctor. When my kids were little, I remember using this thick, goopy cream to help soothe their sensitive skin. It was so difficult to wipe off. Not with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. You only need a small amount, and it's really easy to apply and remove. It's also free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, so it's gentle on your baby's delicate skin. Help your baby feel better and get relief from irritating diaper rash with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Look for it on Amazon and Walmart.com. Before we start today's show, here are some great tips as you prepare for breastfeeding. Hi, Preggy Pal listeners. I'm Robin Kaplan, an international board certified lactation consultant, 
owner of the San Diego Breastfeeding Center, and a host and producer of Preggy Pal's sister show, The Boob Group. I'm here to offer some advice on what you can do during pregnancy to prepare for a positive breastfeeding experience, such as think about setting a breastfeeding goal with your partner. Breastfeeding is only one component of parenting where you will want to be on the same page with your partner. While the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of your baby's life until one year with complementary foods and then past one year as long as it's mutually beneficial for mom and baby, this may not be your personal breastfeeding goal. Everyone in your life will have an opinion about how long you should breastfeed. However, it is up to you and your partner to figure out what makes the most sense for your family. Now, why is this important to decide while you are still pregnant? Well, there are many reasons. Say you are having a breastfeeding challenge when your baby is a few weeks old. If you and your partner have set your breastfeeding goal for a year, it will definitely make sense for you to seek the help you need at this early stage of your goal. It's like investing in the perfect shoe as you train for a marathon. What if you have a critical family member who is making passive-aggressive comments about how often your baby breastfeeds and wonders aloud why you just don't give your baby a bottle so you can sleep more? If you have set your breastfeeding goal with your partner, all he or she has to do is take this person aside and let him or her know that you both would appreciate only breastfeeding positive comments in your presence. Lastly, once your family reaches your initial breastfeeding goal, you all have something to celebrate together. Plus, you may just decide to extend that goal a little bit further if things are going really well for all of you. For more great information about what you can do during pregnancy to prepare for a positive breastfeeding experience, please check out my blog at the San Diego Breastfeeding Center.com backslash blog. And be sure to listen to Preggy Pals and the Boob Group for fantastic conversations about breastfeeding and breastfeeding support. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Today on Preggy Pals, we're discussing the truth about gestational diabetes. Our expert today is Dr. Douglas Fenton, an OBGYN with Scripps Health, who has treated his fair share of patients with gestational diabetes. Dr. Fenton, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about the basics of gestational diabetes. What exactly is it, and what causes it? Well, gestational diabetes uh, reflects glucose intolerance that occurs for the first time or at least diagnosed the first time during pregnancy. What glucose intolerance means is essentially the blood sugar is more elevated than it should be. It's very common. Uh, Some of the hormones produced by the placenta uh, cause the blood sugar to rise and the mother's not able to make enough insulin to lower the blood sugar into a normal level. Family history is a big factor. As well, ethnic predisposition is a big factor. If women come into the pregnancy overweight, that's also a large factor. Are we talking about any kind of diabetes? Because like, I know there's different classifications, right? We've got diabetes 1, diabetes 2. How does that factor into it? Well, again, gestational diabetes is quite a bit less severe in the sense of type 2 and type 1 diabetics. Okay. Type 1 diabetics is typically diagnosed in young people. Uh, it tends to be a result of islet cell antibodies, antibodies that actually attack the cells that make uh, insulin in the pancreas. 
type 2 diabetes uh, is glucose intolerance that persists uh, even in a patient that's not pregnant, it tends to be associated with uh, chronically elevated blood sugars and be associated with a lot more problems in life, such as cardiovascular disease, stroke, peripheral vascular disease. Okay. I actually have a question for our panelists here in the studio. Have you guys taken your initial uh, gestational diabetes test yet, everybody? Mm-hmm. I took mine at eight weeks, and I'm anticipating I have to take it again um, just because I had a big baby last time, and my grandma was just diagnosed with, I think, type 2, based on what you just said, since it's my grandma and she's not young. <laughs> um, so that made them want me to take the test at 8 weeks, and then I think you take it at around 26 weeks. Is that about normal? 24 to 28 weeks, yeah. and family history is a big component, large babies. Yeah. How big was your first baby? She was 10 pounds, one ounce. That's a big baby. Yeah. So. <laughs> but, they, but they tested her. Well, they tested me, and I was negative, you know, at 26 weeks or whatever. And then they tested her after birth, and she didn't have anything. Yeah. You know, she didn't have, we didn't have it. So. Yeah. I have mine scheduled, but I haven't been yet. And I'm having it at about a week and a half, 28 weeks, but my midwives do something a little different. So I don't have to do, I know a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about that drink you had to drink with sugar. They don't do that at all. What do they do? Have they they explained it? Yeah. They, um, they basically gave me a menu, a very specific, you know, meal that I have to eat that's sort of structured and planned in terms of, you know, the contents of carbohydrate, fat, all the macronutrients in it. Um, I have to consume it two hours before my appointment. And then when I get there, they wanted me to go for a walk for 15, 20 minutes around the parking lot to kind of exercise a little. And then they take my blood. So it's still a blood test, but it's without drinking that the That sounds better. The that orange stuff. drink is just, oh. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit about that, Dr. Fenton. <laughs> what is the process for determining whether or not you have gestational diabetes? Well, there's two main ways now. Um, there's uh, risk factor based uh, screening, and then there's also universal screening. About 90% of women will have a risk factor. So it's generally recommended that all women be screened for gestational diabetes. Um, The most common uh, way to screen is a two-step process where you uh, have a non-fasting, not diet-related drink of 50 grams of uh, glucose, and an hour later you have your blood drawn. Uh, If the blood glucose level is uh, 130 or 140, um, then you go on to a uh, three-hour glucose tolerance test where you have your blood drawn four times, uh, fasting one hour after a drink, two hours, and three hours. And then if two out of the four levels are abnormal, you're considered a gestational diabetic. Amy had the more recent type of screening that's being adopted where she had initial screening because of a risk factor. Mm-hmm. That risk factor was a history in the family as well as a macrosomic or a large infant of 10 pounds. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it was a surprise. Yeah. So she had that screening. Uh, that's usually just a blood test, uh, not related to drinking anything. And then uh, at 24 to 28 weeks, you do a 75-gram glucose drink, and there's three different levels drawn. And if one out of the three levels is abnormal, you're considered a gestational diabetic. And that's more commonly adopted. Cherry uh, also has a screening, um, which is a meal-type screening, where you eat a meal and for three to four days before you eat a specific carbohydrate diet, and then have your blood drawn after this dietary program. And that's also a reasonable form of screening. So that's an accepted form of screening as well. 
I actually had the same thing happen to me, Amy. Um, I had a big baby. My my son was just over nine pounds, and I was really surprised that they came to me. My OB came to me and said that you know I needed to do that initial. You know, that initial yeah. test. I was like, oh, no, really? But I thought I had to drink. Did you have to drink? I drank. I drank some sort of sugar Unfortunately, drink too. I drank it, yeah. Yeah. It makes me sick. I don't oh. like it. I don't like sugar. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> like, I general. I don't like sugar. I just don't like that drink. <laughs> yeah. No, sugar just doesn't. Is it just I, it too sweet, the drink? Is it just like it just really, a, really sweet? It's like a flat orange nasty soda. taste. Okay. Yeah. Most of the uh, sugars we drink are fructose, which is a combination of galactose and glucose. Uh, but pure glucose uh, tends to be quite sugary and sometimes can cause a bit of nausea. So it's not a real popular test. Yeah. <laughs> it's like orange syrup. Yeah. I don't know. Well, and I'm definitely getting my fair share because I had that probably at about eight or nine weeks. I, I took that test. And then I went back in um, for the regular test probably around, you know, 26 weeks, something like that. And I, my levels were a little high, which I was really surprised by, you know, because I didn't have that problem with my son at all, my first baby. And I went back in. I did the three-hour test. And I'm telling you what, that sugar drink is even worse. Because I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Fenton, but is it because it has to last more hours? Is that why that second sugar drink you take is so much more like compact it's like so much more sugary it might have been a little bit more sugar but no one likes it ever yeah i know but no it was different and i felt like it was just more compact you know just because it had to last longer and those results came back and i had one level that was high which puts me borderline gestational diabetes. And this is an interesting position to be in. I didn't even know you could be borderline gestational yeah, diabetes. Um, but I am. And I don't have to, you know, prick my finger. I don't have to do the test thing all the time. But they did make me modify my diet. I don't think it's as much as a diabetic would have to do. Um, but I have to modify my diet. They wanted me to do some sort of exercise after each major meal. And um, just basically, you know, watch what I ate, you know, um, stay active as much as you can. And and here's the thing. Retake that three-hour oh, test. No. I have to take it tomorrow. Oh, Again. Gosh, so that's what I mean. I've had my fair share. So you test. did the test where you had your blood drawn four times. Yes. And one out of four was abnormal. One out of four. So yeah. that put me borderline gestational diabetes. And they told me at the time that – the reason they do this, they make you modify everything, is that more times than not, those women will end up developing gestational diabetes. So if you have one factor at about 26, 24, 28 weeks, um, if one of your levels is higher, you'll probably end up developing it. But they said, regardless, even if tomorrow I take the test and I still only have one level or I have you know zero levels that are above, that I still have to kind of continue this. That's what um, you've been doing. Well, yeah. you only got a couple weeks left. Five, five weeks five to weeks, go. Five weeks left. <laughs> is so. the diet difficult? Like what? What are they having you? Well, unlike you, Amy, I love sugar. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if that was a factor because I love sugar too. I don't. I actually, that's that's the question for Dr. Fenton. And what was the question? <laughs> I mean, do I like, love sugar? No. Yeah. Do you love sugar? No. I mean, if you love those types of things, even if you're not overweight, does that put you more at risk for developing gestational diabetes? You know, it does. Simple sugars can be a problem in our diet in general and can lead to more obesity, which is obviously a problem in our uh culture. You know, I do recommend patients have an exercise program during and uh, before and during pregnancy. Uh, If you do exercise before, have an exercise program and maintain it during the first half of pregnancy, your chances of developing gestational diabetes are less because 
exercise been shown to increase our tissue sensitivity to insulin. So it's better to uh, control the blood sugar that way. If you start a exercise program after you've already been diagnosed with gestational diabetes, it tends not to really help all that much. So it's good to exercise before and maintain an exercise Great. program. Well, what pregnancy. if you're borderline? <laughs> Oops. Can it help if you're borderline, like what they recommended to me? Uh, well, I don't know the date on that, but I'll agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Since I advocate exercise. Sure. Anyway, I think any exercise is uh, very helpful. And along so. those lines, can you prevent, is there anything we can do to prevent gestational diabetes? I mean, you were talking about, you know, a healthy diet and exercise that you recommend that for anyone. Right. Anything else that we could do to try to prevent it? No, you can't do too much about your ethnic background or your family history, but uh, weight loss before pregnancy, obviously, diet, exercise are important. In general, in our diet, we should avoid uh, pasta, rice, cereals, simple sugars. Okay. So all that can help. It can really help. <laughs> yeah, I actually saw a doctor. This was a couple of years ago, um, you know, long long before I uh, started trying to conceive. But I was overweight at the time, and I had been chatting with her. And she, you know, she, I had mentioned to her that, you know, we do want to start a family. I don't know when. And, and she sort of expressed concern about my weight at the time because she did say it would put me at a higher risk. And th- that definitely kicked my butt into gear yeah. and into the gym. Yeah, that's right. I forgot <laughs> And you I lost told you guys that, that last year I lost 45 pounds. So, wow. yeah, because, uh, you know, I just didn't never gestational diabetes or not. I didn't want to start a You're pregnancy so at that now. weight. So well, this picture is, it. <laughs> well, this is what I was before I gained 45 pounds and then lost the 45 pounds. So I just feel like I'm me again. But, um, right. yeah, and I do have a history of diabetes in my family, but it's typically, typically type 2 and hits much later on. Yeah. Well, gestational diabetes can also impact labor and delivery, can cause other issues for baby and after the baby is born as well. So we're going to find out how after this quick break. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Welcome back. Okay, now we're going to talk about how gestational diabetes impacts labor and delivery. And this is really important because I don't think a lot of people know that it can impact labor and delivery. We think about how you know, it impacts your diet and your exercise and for the first nine months, right? But there are other complications. So Dr. Fenton, let's talk a little bit about this. How does gestational diabetes impact labor? Well, I think the most important thing is just uh, when is the labor going to occur? If you have a patient with very, very mild gestational diabetes and they don't require any insulin or oral medications to control their blood sugar, we typically allow those patients to go to their due date or a week past their due date before we recommend induction. But in those patients who are actually on insulin, we typically will recommend inducing the patient at 39 weeks. There's a lot of uh, reticence for patients to actually be induced. You know, most patients do want to go into labor. They don't want to be induced. But the problem is the um, the data, you know, as we look at all the uh, labor and delivery studies on patients who have gestational diabetes, actually the incidence of cesarean section is less by inducing them because the size of the baby is controlled. And we want to d- deliver the babies before the babies become macrosomic or over 9 pounds. 
babies that are large in size, and especially if they're infants and diabetic mothers, they tend to have uh, a larger shoulder girdle, and there's an increased risk of, number one, cesarean section because the baby's too big, and also the risk of birth trauma to the baby. So if the baby's big, the head can come out and the shoulders don't come out, and you can end up breaking the clavicle or the collarbone of the baby, or the baby can just have a a greater difficulty being delivered. So by inducing patients with gestational diabetes at 39 weeks, we prevent some of the large babies or macrosomia, and we actually reduce the incidence of cesarean section. How much are OBs monitoring? I know it probably depends on the OB, but how much are you guys monitoring how big the babies get for a mother who has been, you know, classified as having gestational diabetes? Because I know, again, I'm a borderline case. I'm not full gestational diabetes, but my OB did say, you know, because, uh, you know, I'm scheduled to have a C-section, she's like, it doesn't really matter how big your baby gets. I'm really not going to monitor it. But would that be different if I was having a vaginal birth? Well, if you measure huge, um, then we typically, I would typically do an ultrasound just because if the birth weight of a baby in a mother that has gestational diabetes is over 4,500 grams, there is an increased risk of uh, birth trauma. And the problem is that the accuracy of ultrasound around term is so poor. So in patients who you do ultrasounds on uh, for fetal size, you have to, if the estimated fetal weight is 4,800 grams, only 50% of those babies will really be over 4,500 grams. So it's, there's really no way to estimate the size. Okay. In my career, which is about 30 years long, I've probably done cesarean sections purely for the indication of macrosomia or really, really large babies like Probably less than 10 times. So uh, unfortunately, uh, the really ultrasound is very inaccurate at term because of the large standard deviation uh, in the measurements we get. So it's, it's difficult. And do you have moms that simply don't want to be induced or would fight something like that simply because, you know, you really don't know, like you said, with the ultrasounds, you really don't know how big the baby is or what's going on there? You know, typically when you explain the indications uh, for induction, patients really want the best interests uh, of the baby. So Mm -hmm. they they comply pretty easily with that as long as you give them a reasonable explanation for it. Okay. And especially when you explain it actually reduces their risk for cesarean section. Mm -hmm. There's a great concern that inductions will increase their risk for C-section. And so when you explain in this specific indication for this specific medical problem, it actually reduces their risk, then their understanding of that. If you've been induced once, I mean, it's kind of a little bit off topic, but not quite. Does it increase your chances of getting induced a second pregnancy or no? Not really. Most patients who get induced with their second or third pregnancy actually ask the doctor to induce you. So (laughs) uh, that's usually why we do inductions, other than medical problems. And the second and third inductions are much easier than the first induction. Let's talk a little bit about the glucose IV. Who needs to have that during labor and delivery? I've never even heard of that. What is that? Yeah, yeah, what is that? Well, most people who have, uh, a lot of people who have an IV have dextrose. When you hear on TV shows D5LR, it's 5% dextrose. So that that's glucose, essentially. Okay. In labor, most patients' blood sugars are pretty well controlled with gestational diabetes. So typically, we don't use an infusion of glucose during labor for gestational diabetics. But we still monitor the 
blood glucose level every two hours. So typically you'll have a finger stick blood glucose monitoring uh, every two hours in labor. And that's only if you've been classified as having gestational diabetes. Correct. Let's talk a little bit about after childbirth. Okay, so the baby comes out. Are mothers with gestational diabetes more likely to develop type 2 diabetes later in life? They are. Um, first of all, there can be, since the gestational diabetes, oftentimes we don't test for um, diabetes before pregnancy. We're assuming a patient's a gestational diabetic, but they may have brought that into their pregnancy if they weren't screened. Right. So about 10% of women uh, will continue to have diabetes after they deliver, which means they probably had type 2 diabetes going into the pregnancy. It just wasn't diagnosed. If you look at long-term, patients with gestational diabetes have about 40% of them develop uh, type 2 diabetes in the next 20 years. So it is recommended that if you are a gestational diabetic, that you have the appropriate screening tests every three years. And what does that test consist of? Do we have to drink more of the sugary stuff? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure they'll come up with some test to torture people. But uh, no, actually, it's usually just uh, fasting blood glucose and a hemoglobin A1C every three years. Every three years. And when does that first test start? Because I have a friend that was recently diagnosed with gestational diabetes. She had her baby. And it was probably less than six months later she had to have her first test. Well, usually at the six-week postpartum visit, we do do another uh, test and there is a 75 uh, gram glucose screening test that for continued diabetes that is recommended. Right. I want to talk a little bit about how this impacts the baby because we've been talking about how it impacts us as pregnant women and how we have to change. But what are you guys really looking for? Um, are you looking for how this is going to impact the baby or is it more about how it impacts the mom during pregnancy and labor and delivery? No, actually, it's much more important for the baby. Um, the things we want to avoid is uh, macrosomia, which, again, is defined as a baby greater than 10 pounds because of the risk of cesarean section, because of the risk of um, fetal birth injury, you know, injury to the baby because of the size. The other things we're concerned about are mainly that the baby will be born, and because um, their blood sugar has been high, because of the mother's blood sugar being high, they're cranking out a lot of insulin to deal with that higher blood sugar. So once the cord is cut, the baby's still making a lot of insulin so the blood sugar can drop. So preventing neonatal hypoglycemia is very important. The other metabolic things that can occur are hypocalcemia, jaundice, or what we call hyperbilirubinemia. And we want to avoid all those immediate metabolic complications. The other thing is if you look at um, uncontrolled diabetes in pregnancy, including gestational diabetes, those children are at increased risk for diabetes themselves as well as childhood obesity. So there is a real advantage both in the immediate post-delivery period of time but also long-term for the child. So it, it is important to make the diagnosis, get the blood sugar in good control. And then for the child, if a mother has gestational diabetes, how much testing does that child typically have to go through, um, you know, to determine that they're okay? Any patient who, any baby that's born to a mother that has gestational diabetes usually just has uh, a few blood sugars drawn to make sure their blood sugar is okay. Right when they come out. Right when they come out. And if those levels are, are are we looking for high levels in a baby or low levels? Normal levels. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) right. We ultimately want normal levels. But because I know for women, we're looking for high, you know, blood glucose 
levels. No, you're looking for the blood glucose level to, that's very low. And very you low. Need to treat that in the baby. Okay. So okay. preventing hypo or low blood sugar is the most important thing, okay. and that's actually in. The thing I'd like to do is encourage patients that have gestational diabetes. It's really nothing to be afraid of. It's uh, We've known about gestational diabetes since before I was even a resident in 1982. Uh, it's easily treatable. Um, it's not that difficult. And uh, the vast majority of babies are born just fine and stay with their mothers and are able to bond on their chest and, you know, just a few extra monitoring of the blood sugar after the baby's born. It's really not that... uh not that big of a deal so long as you get appropriate treatment during pregnancy. So don't stress out if we if I go into my test tomorrow and they say, okay, Sonny, you had one level high and now you've got two. You get gestational diabetes. No, I'd find something else to be stressed about. <laughs> like there's not enough, right, for pregnant women. Like trying to drive home in the rain. Or something. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Fenton, for joining us today. It was great talking to you. We appreciate all the great information. If you want to learn more about Dr. Fenton, in his practice, simply visit the episodes page on our website and look for today's topic. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Here's a question for one of our experts. Hi, my name is Michelle and I'm calling from New York City. I just listened to episode two about natural cesareans. And first of all, thank you so much for doing this episode. I've, I've actually never heard of this procedure before and it's something that really interests me. I had an emergency C-section with my first child, and I'm currently pregnant with my second, but I'm planning for a VBAC this time. And so my question is, if during my labor we discover that a VBAC is no longer an option, can I still try for a natural cesarean, or is this procedure something that requires advanced planning? Thank you so much. Hi, Michelle. This is Dr. Kaftanakis. Thank you for the great question. I just wanted to answer it for you. Uh, the natural cesarean can be performed in those rare cases where uh, uh, VBAC is not successful. Um, one thing I would suggest is talking with your care provider and making sure that he or she knows uh, your desires. Uh, not that you're thinking about if it doesn't succeed, but just to cover all your bases. Let them know that you would like it to be, uh, again, as natural as possible. And in case things aren't going as well and it looks like, you know, a vaginal delivery isn't a possibility, then your provider already knows that you would like a natural cesarean. I would touch base with him or her at that point. And as long as everybody's stable, there shouldn't be any reason why a natural cesarean couldn't be performed. In the rare case where it's truly emergency, where mom would have a general uh, endotracheal anesthetic where mom goes to sleep, unfortunately, the concern is for, you know, getting baby delivered in a timely fashion. So at that point, uh, most of the time, uh, family members and dads are not allowed in the OR because it is more of a quick procedure and because, you know, the thought is that support people are there for support and if mom's sleeping, um, then she 
in theory, doesn't need as, as much support. So in that rare case, because you're worried about baby or mom, at that point you're going quite fast, and so a natural serum wouldn't be performed or possible at that point. Now, that is extremely, extremely rare. Let me repeat it. Very rare that that would need to happen. Most of the times with uh, a trial of labor after a C-section, um, things are slowing down or your cervix isn't dilating or baby's not coming down or for whatever reason the decision is made to proceed with a C-section. As long as it's not emergent, you should be able to have a natural cesarean. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. If you have a question for one of our experts, we would love to hear it. You can call our Preggy Pals hotline at 619-866-4775. Leave us a message and we'll answer your question on an upcoming episode. Thanks for listening to Preggy Pals, your pregnancy, your way. This has been a new mommy media production. The information and material contained in this episode are presented for educational purposes only. Statements and opinions expressed in this episode are not necessarily those of New Mommy Media and should not be considered facts. While such information and materials are believed to be accurate, it is not intended to replace or substitute for professional medical advice or care and should not be used for diagnosing or treating health care problem or disease or prescribing any medication. If you have questions or concerns regarding your physical or mental health or the health of your baby, Please seek assistance from a qualified health care provider. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hey, mamas. Don't forget to check out Mighty Moms. It's our online community built for new moms just like you. Not only can you connect with other moms, but you can also join us backstage for special mom-only online events. And you'll also be notified when we're recording so you can join us as a special guest. Visit our website, newmommymedia.com, and click on the Mighty Moms banner. It's free. That's newmommymedia.com. See you there.